Good morning, church. I love you, and I appreciate you. There's nothing in the world that I enjoy more than being with you and praising God with you. What a tremendous blessing it is, isn't it? To be able to gather together and praise God together and encourage each other. You are such an encouragement to me, and I love you. Let me ask you a question. If you were going to launch a mission to change the world, if you were going to launch a mission to, to make the world a better place, what sort of people would you recruit to be on your team? What sort of people would you recruit if you were going to build a dream team? If you were going to put together a team of people that were going to launch a mission to change the world and make the world a better place? Well, I have a feeling that most of us would think, you know, we need some some well-known people, some famous people, don't we? We need some famous people, people with a platform, people that can let other people know that, that are influential. We need some influencers. We need some celebrities. We need some, some rock stars or some movie stars or, or some TV stars, some famous athletes, people with lots of money, people with lots of influence. That's how we tend to think, isn't it? That if we were going to launch a mission to change the world, those are the sorts of people that we would recruit. We would recruit extraordinary people. We'd go out and we'd build a dream team of extraordinary people. But you know who didn't think like that? God. God didn't think like that. When, When God launched a mission to change the world... He passed over the extraordinary people. There were extraordinary people in the first century too. There were rich people and well-known people, famous people, royal people, strong people, wise people, and God passed over all of them. And he picked the incredibly ordinary people, the humble people. And so if there's ever been a time in your life where you've thought, I'm not extraordinary, I... I'm just a regular, ordinary, normal kind of person, then you should hear the gospel as saying, good, those are exactly the kind of people that God chose to change the world. Or you may even think to yourself, I wish I was normal. I wish I was ordinary. I wish I was average. I'm below average. I'm, I'm less than ordinary. I'm less than normal. Then God says to you too, oh, even better news. Those are the kinds of people that God chose to change the world. This is particularly the way that Luke tells his gospel account. He wants us to understand that this is the way that God has gone about changing the world. And it reminds me so much, as we've gone through this series, I've thought so much about what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So I want to read that before we get into this morning's lesson. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. This is from the New Living Translation. I think it's on the screen. It says this, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes. Few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful, or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. 
God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. See, we still have a tendency to not embrace this reality. We have a tendency to think God needs, God needs, God needs powerful people. God needs famous people. God needs rich people. God needs people that the world will will bow down to and, and respect. Nonsense. God needs humble people. God needs faithful people. God needs people who love him and fear him. That's that's who God needs. God needs normal, ordinary, even less than normal, less than ordinary, average, humble people who love him and who will be faithful to him. Those are the people that God chooses to work through to change the world. You say, well, but can't rich people and powerful people come to God as well? Yes, but Jesus says it's really hard. It's really hard because they have to particularly humble themselves. And this is what the gospel says to us that is so incredibly surprising. In fact, Luke, again, frames his gospel account this way. In fact, here's a fun exercise. We won't do this too much this morning, but go and read Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus and then compare it with Luke's account of the gospel of Jesus or or the, the birth of Jesus. And and notice the things that Matthew includes versus the things that Luke includes. And then you'll see how Luke is particularly choosing details to frame the story in this way. He doesn't say anything about the star. He doesn't say anything about the magi from the east coming and bringing their wealth to King Jesus. He doesn't say anything about that. Instead, he tells us this story about a manger and about shepherds. He he doesn't begin by talking about Bethlehem. He begins by talking about Nazareth, this little worthless town in Galilee. And he wants us to understand this is where the people that God chose to be the parents of the Messiah, this is where they were from. And only later did they end up in Bethlehem. So if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. Luke begins this part of the story by saying this, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, it's interesting because, again, if you read Matthew's account, Matthew doesn't say anything about this. Matthew doesn't begin by talking about Caesar Augustus or about the governor of Syria. In fact, we might look at this and say, why are you you mentioning Caesar in a story about the true king of the world, the true king of kings? I, I think that's particularly why Luke is mentioning this, so that we see the contrast between Jesus and Caesar, between the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that's breaking into the world, and the kingdoms of the world the earthly kingdoms, and the way that the the kings of the world think about things and look at things and consider things and evaluate things versus the way God looks at things and considers things and evaluates things. 
And it helps us to reflect on ourselves and think, do I think about things more like Caesar does or more like Jesus does? Am I looking at the world through the lens of the kingdom of Rome or am I looking at the world through the lens of the kingdom of heaven? See, Caesar thought that he was the most powerful, the greatest. In fact, most people would have said, if you had asked them, who's the greatest person in the world? Who's the most powerful person in the world? Who's the richest person in the world? You would have said, well, Caesar. Caesar. In fact, Caesar Augustus believed himself to be a son of a god. In fact, we found inscriptions from this time period that say this about Caesar. Here's a, a, a calendar inscription that celebrates the, the birth of Caesar Augustus. And it says this, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings. The Greek word there is euangelion. You know how we usually translate that? Gospel. Gospel. So these pagans were saying about Augustus that the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel, the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. So do you see what the gospel writers are saying and doing when they're saying, no, actually, that, that the birthday of Augustus is not the beginning of euangelion for the world. That's not the beginning of good news. That's not the gospel. The real gospel is the birth of Jesus of Nazareth who was born in Bethlehem. That's the beginning of good tidings. That's the beginning of good news. Caesar Augustus is not the greatest. He's not the king of kings. He's not the Lord of lords. The true king is this little baby that you might not even known was born into the world if it's not for what is being described here. Verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, we have all kinds of ways of sort of picturing this journey, don't we? We picture Joseph and Mary by themselves with a donkey. We, we picture all kinds of things. Don't go beyond what the text says. Just kind of listen to what the text is describing. It doesn't necessarily say they were by themselves. It doesn't necessarily say that, that Jesus was born the very night they arrived in Bethlehem. In fact, in verse 6, here's how the NIV reads. It says, while they were there, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room, which is probably a better translation, no guest room available for them. We don't really know how, how long they had been there, or how long they intended to stay there, or exactly what sort of dwelling they're in. Some translations say an inn. There was no room in the inn for them. But probably, again, a better translation is guest room. There was no guest room for them. Scholars now think that it's probably best that we picture that they were probably staying at a relative's home. And they were probably staying at a relative's home, and there wasn't room in the guest room for them. So they were on the downstairs portion of the house, which is 
by the way, where the animals came inside the house. We'll show you a picture. Here's a picture of a first century home. That's kind of how they were structured. And so at night, they would bring the animals downstairs into the house. And of course, there were kind of places cut out in the floor, low places, mangers, that they would put food in. And baby Jesus was laid in one of those feeding troughs, probably, again, in the lower part of this house because there was no room for them upstairs in the guest room. And so on the one hand, yes, it's extraordinary in one sense because I don't think that was a normal thing for them to put newborn babies in a manger. But on the other hand, it was incredibly ordinary. Incredibly ordinary kind of a situation. Because what Luke is telling us over and over again throughout this account is that these people were very, very ordinary, very, very poor, very, very common, just as there were thousands, a multitude of poor, common people throughout Israel at that time, just as there are common, ordinary, poor people all over the world today. And Jesus came as one of them, and his family was one of them. One such common, ordinary, poor family. Again, nothing like Augustus, right? Nothing like Caesar. This was not a palace. This was not a throne. There, there was nothing beautiful or wonderful or ornate in this place where he was born. This was a very common place. This was a very poor place. Look at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, if you've been reading along this gospel account, Luke, he's told us three different occasions when an angel has appeared to someone. First to Zechariah, the humble priest who'd been praying and waiting for a child his entire life and was waiting and waiting and waiting. To Mary, this teenager of, as she put it, humble estate, this poor teenager who lived in this backwoods town of Nazareth, and now to these shepherds, an angel has shown up. And the, the reaction is always the same. The reaction is always the same. They're terrified, of course. They're, they're in fear. They're overwhelmed. And, and then they're told to not be afraid by the, by the angel. But notice again. Look at the people that God is choosing to show himself to, to appear to, to communicate with, to send his messengers to. A humble priest, a poor teenager, these shepherds. It's not to the Sanhedrin, not to the Jewish high council, not to kings, not to royalty, not to powerful people, not to rich people, not to people that others respected, not to people at the top of the social ladder, the people you might think and expect, this is who God is going to recruit. God's going to recruit the powerful and the wealthy, the celebrities, the influencers. And God says, no, 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 none of that, none of that. I want these people. These are the people to whom he shows up. These are the people to whom he manifests himself. Verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not, fear not. Isn't that beautiful? 
Again, these are people who feared the Lord. And when the Lord's messenger shows up, he has the same message for all three of them, all these groups of people. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. See, this is the good news. This is the good news. Caesar Augustus and his birth is not the good news. This is the good news. This is the news that is bursting forth out of heaven. This is the news that the angels are saying, these are the good tidings. This is the beginning of good news for all the people. Not the birth of Augustus, the birth of Jesus, because he is Christ. What does Christ mean? Christ means God's anointed one. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He's the one that's going to save his people. It's him. And you're going to find him. You're going to find him not in a palace, but you're going to find him lying in a manger. In fact, the angel says, this is the sign for you. Now, of course, Matthew will tell us that the sign for the Magi was the star. The sign for the shepherds is that this baby is lying in a feeding trough. That's how you'll know. It's it's very subversive, isn't it? It's very much the opposite of what you would expect. Here's how you'll know you found the king of kings. Here's how you'll know you found the savior. Here's how you'll know you found God's anointed one. He's lying in a feeding trough. That's how you'll know. See, again, again, we still have a tendency, don't we? to think of the world and to see the world and to process the world through the eyes of Caesar, through the eyes of the kingdoms of the earth. But this story, this good news, is giving us new eyes to see and new ears to hear. To say, if you're willing to listen, if you're willing to see, now you'll have a new way of seeing the world. Now no more will you look at the rich and powerful and influential and say they're the greatest. No, when when God shows up, when his anointed king shows up, and he tells the common ordinary shepherds, here's how you'll know you found the king. He's lying in a feeding trough. That changes everything, doesn't it? It changes how you see yourself. It changes how you see your neighbor. It changes how you see the world. It changes how you define greatness. The expectations you have about how God is working in the world and what God is going to do. Look at verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now it's not just one angel. Now it is a multitude of the heavenly host. That word host usually means an army. An army. An army. See, when you think, who has the greatest army? Who's the most powerful? Who's the greatest? You think Caesar. And now these shepherds are finding out, it's not Caesar. Caesar's got nothing. He's nothing compared to this baby who's lying in a feeding trough. This baby has 
a host, a multitude of angel armies who praise him, who serve him. He is the true king. He's the most powerful one. But his greatness isn't manifest the way Caesar's supposed greatness is manifest. God doesn't operate like that. God doesn't think like that. God doesn't evaluate things like that. And neither should those who have eyes to see or ears to hear. God is showing up to the common, to the humble, to those who fear him. And if it wasn't for this announcement, nobody else would really know that something spectacular had happened, right? I mean, the people next door, if, if Jesus is born downstairs in kind of the, the common place in the house with the animals and the feeding trough, and he's born there, the people next door might be totally oblivious to the fact the Savior was just born next door. The Messiah was just born next door. The people a block over would have no idea that something spectacular had happened. Even if they had walked in and they saw a baby lying in a feeding trough, they wouldn't know that this is who this is. But God chooses a group of dirty, nasty shepherds out in the field and says, you, you're the one I'm going to reveal myself to. I'm going to tell you the truth about who this baby is, and I want you to be the ones to proclaim it. Let's go on to verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Can you imagine knowing what no one else knew? Knowing that you knew something about this baby that most of the other people around didn't know. That you were privy to information that no one else had. That, that you, you knew a secret about this, this child that Mary knew, right? Joseph knew, but other people didn't know. What would you think to yourself? I would think, who am I to know this? Who am I that God has revealed this to me? I'm just a shepherd. I'm not a scholar. I'm not a rabbi. I'm not a teacher. I'm not royalty. I'm nobody special. You see, that's, that's what the gospel is saying over and over and over again. That's that is precisely why you've been chosen. is so that God could choose what the world sees as foolish and weak and nothing and poor, and God could use you to shame what the world considers powerful and rich and great and wise. God chose you because everyone thinks of you as nothing. Because God doesn't see you that way. He doesn't see you as nothing. He doesn't see you as unimportant. And he is exalting you precisely because of that reason. And so to these shepherds, God has given this spectacular information. Verse 17, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. 
And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You see what these shepherds became? They became some of the very first evangelists. Evangelist comes from the word euangelion, good news, good tidings. These shepherds became the very first human evangelists to say, good news, the real king has been born. Good news, God's anointed one has been born. Good news, the Savior has been born. The one we've been waiting for, the one we've been anticipating, he has been born in Bethlehem. They get to be the very first evangelists. But pretty soon they'll be joined by others, won't they? They'll be joined by people like fishermen, tax collector, people the world considers sinners, outcasts, prostitutes. These are the kinds of people that will join them in telling others good news. Everything's changed. The world is about to be turned upside down. God's anointed one has come into the world. And notice it says, all who heard it wondered. That word wonder means to marvel, to be impressed, to be astonished. And Mary pondered these things in her heart. See, ordinary people. Ordinary people who, who had eyes to see, who had ears to hear. They knew good news when they heard it, didn't they? Oh, there were a lot of people that didn't know the good news even when it smacked them upside the face. They, they couldn't tell the good news when it was right there in front of them. But other people, ordinary people, ordinary sinners, knew the good news when they heard it. And these shepherds were ordinary people who knew the good news when they heard it. So the, the question that the gospel writers want us to ask ourselves is do we know good news when we hear it? Do we know good news when we see it? Do we have eyes to see? Do we have ears to hear? And one reason that many of us don't have eyes to see or ears to hear is because we still perceive the world like Caesar. We still see the world through the kingdoms of this earth, through worldliness, through the flesh, rather than through the spirit and like the kingdom of heaven. So I want to end this morning by simply saying, prepare him room by having ears to hear. Prepare him room by having ears to hear. People like this were, were those throughout Luke's account were people who had ears to hear. So that's how you prepare him room. Before his second coming, you must have ears to hear. What does that mean? Number one, pursue God's kingdom rather than Caesar's. Pursue the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdoms of earth. God's kingdom is not one of silver and gold or earthly strength and power. It's one of humility and service and self-sacrifice. Prepare him room by having ears to hear, which means, number two, practice wonder. Practice wonder. Practice being amazed. Practice being astonished by what God is doing. Sometimes we have convinced ourselves that being cynical and skeptical is a virtue. Being unimpressible is a virtue. These ordinary people, when they saw that the king of kings had been born and laid in a feeding trough, they understood 
this changes everything. They were impressed. But some of us have become so cynical that we don't know how to wonder anymore. We don't know how to be amazed anymore. We don't know how to be impressed by what God is doing. When I was a kid, my parents got in the habit of every time they saw a, a sunset, a beautiful sunset, they would say, way to go, God. Way to go, God. And I thought that was so annoying when I was a teenager. I thought, that's so annoying. Come on. Just kind of roll my eyes at it. And now I think, they were right. They were right. Way to go, God. Look around you. Listen to the gospel. There are so many things at which to wonder and be amazed and be impressed. And that's how we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Number three, ponder the good news about Jesus in your heart. Ponder it in your heart, meditate on it, turn it over and over again, ask yourself, how does this change everything? How am I being changed by these things? And finally, praise and glorify God for all you have heard and seen. Be like the shepherds. Praise God for all you have heard and seen. See, God recruits ordinary, ordinary, average and sometimes far below ordinary and average people. And he works through them and says, you, you are the ones that I'm going I'm to recruit and I'm going to partner with to change the world. Celebrate that reality. Embrace that reality. Step into that reality. See, I imagine when these shepherds went back to their fields, Oh, they, they went back to tending sheep, but nothing was ever the same after that night. See, but sometimes we have a tendency to come here on Sunday, listen to the good news, and then go back and live on Monday as if nothing has changed. As if the king hadn't been born and laid in a feeding trough. We go back to evaluating the world the way the world does. Evaluating life the way the world does. Evaluating ourselves the way the world does. We have to have a whole new set of eyes, a whole new set of ears because of what Jesus has done for us. When we're baptized, we're stepping into that reality. We're embracing that reality. We are giving our allegiance to this king and saying, I will see the world the way he teaches me to see the world. I will walk in the world the way he teaches me to walk in the world. And if you're ready to make that commitment or to recommit yourself to that, or to just ask your brothers and sisters to pray with you. Our shepherds would love to meet with you after service, or you can come forward now. As together we stand, sing this song.